You're listening to Let's Talk AI. Okay, good day. This is uh, our next episode of Let's Talk AI. Today we have Gautam Kemath uh, from our Cheriton School of uh, Computer Science. And uh, Gautam's going to talk to us about his journey on, on AI. So welcome, Gautam. Thanks, Harold. Yeah, it's great to be here. So, uh, so tell me a little bit about, uh, let's just start off with um, your area of research and, and work and, and uh, tell, tell us more about that, please. Yeah, what, I guess I, what gets me really excited and up in the morning is trying to understand statistics, machine learning, AI, and all these things. But through the lens and uh, with the constraints that nowadays come up in modern data analysis. For example, like we built this toolbox of tools, you know, statistics is quite old and machine learning over the last, you know, 20 years has been a lot of amazing work done. But some of the considerations that come up in modern, uh, modern data analysis settings weren't really considered when these sorts of things were first dreamed of. For example, things like robustness and privacy of the data uh, these, these are things which are kind of new and uh, not super, super well explored. There's been a lot of uh, interest recently, but uh, I think there's a lot of catching up to do. And I'm hoping to help, you know, our, our understanding of these areas get caught up. Okay. So, so where did this all start for you? It starts, like, how, how did I get into a AI, machine how learning? Did AI, machine learning, and, you know, where, where was that, that, that epiphany, that light went off and said, wow, this is a field I want to study? Yeah, it's, it's, I guess everyone, it seems like all of my friends are converging to machine learning type problems in different directions. I personally started from a more theory point of view in the sense when I was an undergrad, I really liked math. I really liked, uh, you know, computer science. I liked algorithm design, analysis of algorithms, stuff like that. And I, I just thought, okay, I want to do this more. And so I went to grad school with kind of no real no, no real super well-defined idea of what I want to study. I knew I liked math. I knew I liked probability. Probability was really cool to me. Uh, probabilistic style of thinking and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, it just kind of happened that I talked with my advisor. He had some, he, he had some interesting questions in statistical questions. And the way uh, I'm sure many people have had the same experience in kind of doing research and doing in grad school, there's, you ask one question, maybe solve that one question, but then two new questions come out and then two new questions come out. And I felt like some of the questions that really seemed most interesting and uh, coming out of it were maybe theoretical questions in statistics and machine learning. Um, so it just kind of naturally flowed down this path. And uh, uh, I, I found myself asking, you know, theoretical questions about statistics and machine learning, first of all. But then that's, that's not the whole story. I guess when... At some point, I think uh, I, I realized that, you know, a lot of this work that we do in theory is also relevant and it kind of is targeted. We're trying to fulfill a promise in some sense that these things will hopefully be useful to uh, uh, to like real problems. So nowadays I sit kind of somewhere between uh, theory as well as practice in terms of understanding how to do statistics in ML. Okay, so you cl you clicked on a term or touched on a term earlier called robustness. How would you define that in your term, and what what is it? What it, what is non-robustness? You know, what put it in those references? Yeah, yeah, uh, good question. Um, I'd say that people 
when 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 we're when we're analyzing and designing algorithms for things, we usually like to imagine things are very very nicely behaved. For example, uh, I mean, there's a there's a classical uh, joke, I guess, uh, where physicists say, imagine they imagine everything to be spherical. Like this problem is okay as long as you have spherical cows or something. Um, similarly, in statistics and uh, in, in classical statistics, you know, the stuff dreamt of over say like a hundred years ago. Uh, that type of stuff really admit, uh, assumed that we had some sort of perfect models. Our data is generated from some sort of nice distribution or things are well behaved. But nowadays in data analysis, it's rarely the case that uh, things fit our perfect uh, settings, which may just be, you know, simplifications. Uh, yeah, nowadays there might be all sorts of reasons. We might have much more complicated data distributions. Uh, data comes from more complex sources, or even even of a lot of attention nowadays is trying to understand what if there's an adversary in the system, someone, a malicious actor who's trying to change your data set uh, in order for their own selfish gains. So obviously, you know, over a hundred years ago, this wasn't really the forefront of their minds, but given uh, the state of how data is uh, generated and collected nowadays, that might be of more importance. Okay, so if there was, you know, such an adversary and it got infiltrated into a set of data, how would it be identified? And, it, and does the model have to back up and redo its learning before it recognized that adversary was there? Or, or how does it solve it? How does it get rid of the adversary? I think it's really hard to tell in a lot of cases. Like, let me let me give you a very uh, popular uh, question in this area, which uh, in the general area of robustness. Uh, one popular question, which we still, despite its simplicity, we don't have a very good understanding of uh, how to handle it. And this is something called adversarial examples. So to sort of uh, give some context, imagine you have some sort of machine learning model, which is supposed to tell you if, say, a picture is a picture of a cat or if it's a picture of a dog. Now, uh, we are very, very good at this task. We can do neural, build neural networks, which are, can get like 99, almost 100% accuracy on this type of task. Um, but the issue is the following. If an adversary takes one of these pictures in a test set, like you, they, it, it feeds a picture to, uh, to a neural network or a machine learning model, which looks like a cat or a dog, but it turns out that they can make imperceptible changes to this picture, and then, uh, the, the you, pretty reliably, they can make the machine learning model think it's a dog instead of a cat or a cat instead of a dog, basically flip the model's prediction on it. Uh, and this is kind of like one of the attack model that you might look at. And the, the kind of troubling thing is we don't actually know how to perfectly solve this type of problem in the sense that there are some defenses. For example, one defense is similar to what you said, where maybe you have to take a step back and try to maybe take into account the fact that the adversary exists. For example, basically you can retrain your model, but retrain your model knowing that, uh, that there's an adversary trying to do this and take that into account when you're doing the training procedure. But nonetheless, it still, still seems like for more complicated settings, we don't know how to handle these sorts of things. And this is a major open problem in uh, machine learning nowadays. Okay, so if I'm from industry and I put on my hat, I don't, I don't, robustness probably doesn't resonate with me, but this term trustworthy machine learning does. How does robustness, trustworthy, are they, are they synonymous terms or, or what's the difference? I think, yeah, trustworthy machine learning encompasses a lot of different things. 
uh, I'd say trustworthy machine learning, like let's let just uh, say state the obvious. And what, what does it mean? It means that an algorithm should be trustworthy. It should be uh, that when you deploy this algorithm, it behaves kind of as people expect it to. Now, this is often not rigorously defined uh, in the sense like we don't have guarantees of everything that will or won't happen when you're uh, when you're running a machine learning model, but it should kind of behave as we would like it to. For example, uh, it, you should be able to trust that uh, this instance I gave in terms of robustness, that's one form of trustworthiness, uh, which is that, you know, if you have something which you which a human would say is a uh, cat or a dog, then maybe the machine learning model should think it's a cat or a dog as well. That's one aspect of it. Another aspect which I've also done a lot of work on is uh, understanding the privacy aspects. For example, uh, would you trust a machine learning model um, when you when you give your data to be to a machine learning model to be trained? You typically trust that it's not going to reveal sensitive information about you. Uh, that's that's something that would you know, also want a trustworthy model to be able to respect. Um, just things like that, I'd say. It's it's a sort of a more broad term, but that's I'd say trustworthy machine learning is kind of synonymous with uh, the sort of modern considerations in data analysis that I kind of referred to earlier. But is it the same level of comfort we have with, you know, most people's computers are constantly attacked by viruses. Probably not so much these days with our, our great, you know, virus prevention tools and things like that. But there's still a new, occasionally one that gets through. Is it that same level of just awareness, but it's not something that's going to hold us back moving forward in AI? I, I think, yeah, the, you hit on a sort of good point in the sense that in terms of some of our more, uh, more mature systems, uh, things like operating systems and stuff like that, I'd say we have pretty good understandings and pretty good uh, thing, things are relatively safe in a sense. Uh, I use air quotes around safe because we, we understand how these things work. We kind of understand where they'll go wrong. We understand the sort of expected behavior. Whereas for a machine learning model, I'd say it's much, much less on all of these fronts in the sense that uh, things could go wrong in a bunch of ways we understand, uh, some of which we understand okay, and some of which we uh, don't understand well at all. Uh, yeah, I'd say it's, it's kind of much more like the Wild West right now in terms of what we uh, rigorously know and control and con can control. There's a lot more work that still needs to be done in comparison to more classical systems. Uh, just for, for one comparison, like imagine a space shuttle or a car. These are very high, high reliability uh, type settings where, you know, you can't have something going wrong with a space shuttle because if it blows up, there goes your multi-billion dollar investment, maybe, or hundreds of million dollar investment. Um, machine learning models are nowhere even close to something as trustworthy as something like a space shuttle. Okay, well, that's a good comparison. So... I'm going to focus now the spotlight on on yourself. Um, what? How long ago did you join Waterloo? And I see that you're part of the salon. What is that all about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I joined Waterloo in uh, July 2019. Um, so I think I've been at Waterloo maybe like four times longer now remotely than in person. So I've been a very remote faculty, uh, given when the pandemic started. Um, and yeah, when I just uh, when when I was joining Waterloo, I decided. Uh, to come up with a name for my group, uh, my students, because, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just want to have some sort of uh, 
feel of community, uh, which is, I think, very important to me. So I called my group uh, the Salon, uh, which stands for Statistics, Algorithms, Learning, and Optimization. I, I cheated a little bit with the last one. Uh, uh, the N is the N at the end of optimization. But yeah, uh, I chose that of the name. Um, it kind of refers to uh, the practice kind of from, I think, Renaissance era in France, where people would get together and discuss some of the, you know, biggest ideas of the time, uh, philosophy, amongst other things. Uh, and I just like that idea because that's what I want my group to be like, bringing together bright people to discuss interesting ideas. I, I explicitly avoided, you know, some people just choose their last name, Comets Lab. I, I, I didn't really like that because I wanted to make it clear that this is about uh, everyone, not just me. Okay. And well, just for me as the non-mathy, when I hear N, I think to the nth degree. So maybe uh, all of the, the of the S-A-L-O to the nth degree, it, it, it perfectly goes. Um, great. So uh, an area that, that I see occurring across so many fields, so many areas, and especially industry asking about it is how much data do I need to be able to put through my algorithm? So maybe if you could give us a little bit of your insights about that, how much data, what is big data? What is, you know, the, the quantifiers around that? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I think, yeah, a lot of people throw around big data nowadays. And the question is, what does it mean? What does it entail? I can give you a few perspectives on where I think, uh, size is kind of important in machine learning, especially for data. Uh, I would say that one of the biggest successes in modern machine learning uh, has been through things like when I say modern machine learning, there's a lot of things in modern machine learning, but this is kind of one of the most recent trends since maybe around 2017. Uh, it seems like especially for natural language processing tasks, that is tasks which operate on text-based text data, uh, we've seen unprecedented uh, improvements in accuracy using what are known perhaps, they're, they're called large language models by many people, which uh, essentially these are rather large architectures, uh, which, uh, yeah, very, very large architectures in the sense that they're very big on uh, big, I guess, to store and uh, run. But uh, on the topic of data, they're pre-trained on uh, the, the machine learning models trained on a lot of data, which is scraped from the internet. Imagine, you know, downloading a lot of Wikipedia and downloading a lot of uh, news articles and stuff. And you feed all of this, you just get a scrape a bunch of it and feed it all into an algorithm, uh, into a machine learning training algorithm. And then you come out with a very big, uh, a very big and powerful model. It seems like this type of uh, pre-trained model which just uses immense amounts of data online. It doesn't even have to be, you know, uniformly good quality data. This seems to have been incredibly powerful in reaching new uh, levels of performance on many of these tasks. So I think in certain aspects, in, in this aspect, I think this is, uh, in, in this area, this is one clear success in my mind of where big data has been helping. Okay, so let me just jump in for a minute. Yep, yep. You've used the word big, you've used the word immense, you've used the word large. These are all very subjective. Is there, is there a number? Is there, is there, you know, 250,000 records, 2 million records, 10 million? Is there, is there some benchmark as a researcher that says, Hey, I don't have enough. Or is it not about quantity? Is it quality? Where's that? Is it, what's that threshold? 
I think I, th I think it's hard to say in general, in the sense that for every specific uh, specific problem you look at, every specific instance, uh, it might differ very very significantly. For example, uh, uh, let me there there's two the two of the canonical like these are kind of baby tasks in um, in uh, machine learning. One is known is working on a data set known as MNIST. Let's start with MNIST is just a sequence of digits. Like uh, imagine someone hand wrote the numbers zero through nine. Uh, and someone, and the other one is CIFAR 10, which has a bunch of pictures of uh, just 10 different things. For example, dogs, cats, boats, etc. Uh, and these are two data sets which are roughly the same size. Uh, and yeah, they're roughly the same size and uh, they both have the same number of different classes. They're kind of comparable data sets in some ways, but we, it's well established that the former task, uh, MNIST, recognizing whether a digit is zero through nine, is a much, much easier task for machine learning model than uh, CIFAR 10. So it seems like it's just not the amount of the data that matters because it's about the same amount of data in both data sets, but it also matters how hard your task is. You could be trying to do something much more complex and that would require a lot more data. Okay, okay. So we, we looked back, we looked now, what's ahead? Uh, paint us a little bit of your vision of where do you see things going? Um, adoption, is it still at the university, academia, behind closed doors, the rollout? What's your vision? What's your thoughts? I think simultaneously we need to, I, I think, yeah, there, there's a lot of hype right now. And I, I feel like we probably need to slow down a little bit and sort of rethink, uh, though, I'm sure there's other uh, aspects, other uh, sort of industries where maybe it needs to speed up. But I think like there's a lot of hype and people just think it's a panacea machine learning or AI can solve all your problems. I think it's very, very powerful. And uh, but I think folks need to slow down a bit and think about a little bit more than just this is going to solve all our problems in the sense that uh, I think people are sometimes using machine learning models in places where it's it's not appropriate and you know maybe a human would be better suited for making this decision themselves for example uh there was a recent uh some maybe about a year or two ago uh a feature on twitter where uh if you upload an image it would choose how to uh, basically crop the image or how to like display the image if you're on a device where it can't show the whole image because it's too big uh, and people noticed that if you put a picture with two individuals, say uh, there was a, there was a famous one going around, one with uh, former President Barack Obama and uh, Mitch McConnell, that it would more often choose to focus the image to shrink it to show uh, Mitch McConnell rather than Barack Obama. So the speculation was that it maybe maybe whatever algorithm they used there preferred the light face instead of the dark face. That's a potential bias that could have been in the algorithm. It's not really, they, they claim they tested for this sort of thing and there's been some audits done afterwards. Um, and people have been thinking a lot about this. I, I, my personal opinion is this doesn't really even seem like the type of thing that uh, a machine learning model was needed for. You could just ask a, the human to do this themselves. So I think in my opinion, sometimes we see overuse of machine learning for problems. Uh, another thing is that I, I think Again, people are willing to deploy these things, uh, but without real concern of uh, whether whether it's trustworthy in the sense that we kind of described before. 
for example, uh, self-driving cars is you know one of the big hype things. Uh, but one type of uh, issue is whether these are trustworthy uh, and can handle edge cases. It seems like right now uh, you hear now and then about accidents and weird cases. But there's also very simple cases where you run into issues. For example, I remember seeing a picture where, uh, uh, or a video maybe, of a Tesla driving, and it uh, was trying to use full self-driving, but it was recognizing the moon, which was big and yellow looking, as a uh, yellow light. Uh, I think something like that. Or maybe a, it, another thing maybe with a billboard, or uh, which had a picture of a stop sign on it, and the car was interpreting as a stop sign. Now, these might be okay if you're doing it in a, in a low-stakes environment. If you're using machine learning in a low-stakes environment, uh, you know, that's, that's fine. But uh, for something like a self-driving car, I think you would need much more trustworthy and, uh, and reliable machine learning for that sort of thing. Uh, so, and a final thing is I think a, a topic on a lot of people's minds right now is data privacy and trying to understand, uh, you know, when, when you give your data to something, uh, to some organization, what does that really mean? What are you giving up for it? And I think nowadays a lot of people realize that the data that they're revealing about themselves can be rather uh, revelatory. It's uh, it's it's giving a lot of ammunition to understand things and build profiles about people, and maybe things that people are not really comfortable uh, giving up. So I think it there's there needs to be more understanding as well about what are the privacy guarantees. And what are you kind of uh, agreeing to when your uh, data is given for being used in a machine learning setting? Well, it's funny, you know, if you think about the EULA, the, the, the legal disclaimer at the uh, every time you log in, you'd almost need to be a lawyer to understand what exactly it is you're giving up. You know, and um, so that definitely looks like an area that we're going to need some more insights or... Uh, maybe we need a, a short form uh, EULA of uh, they just say we, we will not use your data, period, you know, uh, and, and not put it in, in some of the more complex uh, terms the way it shows today. Well, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, we, we've got some great insights from you today. Any final closing remarks, uh, things you want to talk about related to data or, or this concept of what's a data scientist versus, you know, different things like that? Any other final closing remarks? Uh, I guess I'll just uh, pick up on the last thing you said, which was, uh, you know, it's a very difficult thing. Privacy is a difficult thing for a lot of people. But I think that's why uh, uh, nowadays experts uh, and uh, policymakers are kind of trying to fill this void by realizing that there is a big difference between what people want in terms of privacy and what they uh, what what they understand and what they can handle, you know, the average person doesn't have the time or attention to read through absolutely every every little detail about how their data might be used. So I think it's it's interesting to see how uh, various different countries and uh, organizations are coming up with new privacy uh, legislation. Uh, for example, one of the most high-profile ones of this is uh, GDPR, of course, in Europe, where I'm sure a few years ago all of you got like emails from everything saying that they're updating their privacy policies. And that's because uh, Europe essentially said that we're taking privacy very seriously. And uh, if you don't obey these types of uh, restrictions, then you will get uh, fined uh, significantly. And so it's, it's heartening to see, uh, for example, in Canada, we have uh, some proposed legislation, which I think is currently being uh, considered. I haven't looked at it in a while, but maybe like the last six, six months to a year. Um, so I think, I, I think 
things will get better hopefully though the sort of this is this is perhaps one might think that this is far from what you know machine learning folks uh care about but i think this impresses the idea that uh there really needs to be communication between technical folks as well as policymakers to try to understand and uh come up with the right type of restrictions and policies that we have in the future excellent well i appreciate your time today and thanks for uh, participating in our let's talk ai yeah thanks a lot harold it's been great to be here awesome well you have a great day take care